Section 11 of On the Witness Stand. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Kylie Hutchison. On the Witness Stand. Essays on Psychology and Crime by Hugo Munsterberg. Untrue Confessions, Part 1. It is a sad story which I am going to report. A weird tragedy of yesterday. I am most seriously convinced that it is a tragedy not only of crime, but also of human error and miscarried justice, and my scientific conscience as a psychologist compels me to speak of it, because the tragedy of yesterday may come up again, in some other form, tomorrow. I am the last one to desire for the modern psychologist a special privilege to meddle with the daily affairs of practical life. Far too often the new psychology has been made a kind of jack-of-all-trades, Psychology has had to furnish the patent medicine for all the defects of our schools. Psychology has become the word to conjure with in literature and religion, in social troubles and economic emergencies, and the public can hardly imagine how a psychologist's mail is burdened with inquiries from superstitious and unbalanced minds and with reports of uncanny and mysterious happenings. Wherever experience seems unexplainable, the psychologist is expected at least to pigeonhole and to label the occurrence and to give his official sanction that such strange things may sometimes happen. Yet, the psychologist can hardly glance over such letters without wishing that the public at least might know how much wiser it would be to consult a detective. No mental explanation is in order till the facts themselves are cleared up by methods for which the scholar is not prepared at all. His steady contact with seekers for truth makes him least suspicious of the thousand sources of delusion and deception which an attorney may find out, but not a scholar. But if the psychologist has thus not seldom the wish that the detective were consulted in his place, that does not prevent his regretting sometimes that the world relies on the detective instead of calling in the psychologist. The more the scientific analysis and explanation of mental life makes progress through the experimental and physiological, comparative and clinical methods, the more we learn how subtle the internal connections are and how insufficient the popular psychology must be with which the facts of life are usually interpreted by detectives and attorneys, by juries and judges. To be sure, they all respect the physician who examines whether the criminal was insane or mentally disordered. But between the common sense of the average juryman and the medical science of the alienist, the world of criminal facts cannot be divided fairly. The detective may bring out much evidence which lies outside of the realm of physicians, which yet may be a closed book to the naive view of psychical life. In such case, the psychologist feels it is his duty fearlessly to oppose the popular prejudice. Just this was the situation when I ventured last year to write a letter to a well-known nerve specialist in Chicago who had privately asked my opinion as a psychologist in the case of a man condemned to death for murder. The man had confessed the crime, yet I felt sure that he was innocent. My letter somehow reached the papers and I became the target for editorial sharpshooters everywhere. I have before me still a collection of such specimens. Harvard's contempt of court is the big heading here, science gone crazy, the heading there. And so it went on in the papers, while every mail brought an epistolary chorus. The efforts of the attorneys to change the condemned man's fate by a motion for a supersedious before the Supreme Court were unsuccessful. One week later, the accused was hanged. Yet, if scientific conviction has the right to stand frankly for the truth, I have to say again that he was hanged for a crime of which he was no more guilty than you or I, and the only difference which the last few months have brought about is the fact that, 
as I have been informed on good authority, the most sober-minded people of Chicago today share this sad opinion. I felt sure from the first that no one was to be blamed. Court and jury had evidently done their best to find the facts and weigh the evidence. They are not to be expected to be experts in the analysis of unusual mental states. The proof of the alibi seemed sufficient to some, but insufficient to others. Most various facts allowed of different interpretation, but all hesitation had to be overcome by the one fundamental argument which excluded every doubt. There was a complete confession. And if the sensational press did not manifest a judicial temper, that seemed this time very excusable. The whole population had been at the highest nervous tension from the frequency of brutal murders in the streets of Chicago. Too often the human beast escaped justice. This time, at last, they had found the villain who confessed. He at least was not to escape the gallows. For many years, no murder case had so deeply excited the whole city. Truly, as long as a demand for further psychological inquiry appeared to the masses simply as another way of possibly cheating justice, and as a method tending towards emasculating court procedure and discouraging and disgusting every faithful officer of the law, the newspapers were almost in duty bound to rush in on the tracks of popular prejudice. I took it thus gladly as a noble outburst of Chicago feeling against my long-distance impudence that a leading paper resumed the situation in this way. Illinois has quite enough of people with an itching mania for attending to other people's business without importing impertinence from Massachusetts. This crime itself, no matter who may be the criminal, was one of the frightful fruits of a sickly paltering with the stern administration of law. We do not want any directions from Harvard University irresponsibles for paltering still further. This seems to me to hit the nail on the head exactly, and my only disagreement is with the clause, no matter who may be the criminal. I think it does matter who may be the criminal, whether the one whom they hanged or somebody else who is still today in freedom. But if I examine these endless reports for a real argument why the accused youth was guilty of the heinous crime, everything comes back after all to the statement constantly repeated that it would be inconceivable that any man who was innocent of it should claim the infamy of guilt. Months have passed since the neck of the young man was broken and thousands of persons crowded Michigan Street, jamming that thoroughfare from Clark Street to Dearborn Avenue waiting for the undertaker's wagon to leave the jail yard. The discussion is thus long since removed to the sphere of theoretical argument, and so the hour may be more favorable now for asking once more whether it is really inconceivable that an innocent man can confess to a crime of which he is wholly ignorant. Yet, the theoretical question may perhaps demand no later than tomorrow a practical answer, when perhaps again a weak mind shall work itself into an untrue confession, and the community again rely thereon satisfied hypnotized by the spell of the dangerous belief that murder will out. The history of crime in Chicago has shown sufficiently that murder will not out. It is important that the court, instead of bringing out the guilty thought, shall not bring it in into an innocent consciousness. Of course, in a criminal procedure, there cannot be any better evidence than a confession, provided that it is reliable and well-proved. If the accused acknowledges and express words the guilt in a criminal charge, the purpose of the procedure seems to have been reached, and yet at all times and in all nations experience has suggested a certain distrust of confessions. The earnestness with which caution is urged is decidedly different at different periods. The danger of accepting confessions seems to have been felt more strongly at some times than at others. Has this perhaps depended on the nervous disposition of the crowd at various epochs? No doubt, the abnormal, hysterical, neurotic tendency fluctuated greatly in previous centuries, in which the world was scientifically still unaware of its own nervousness and its own hysteria, and yet it protected its social life instinctively against its dangers. 
The essential argument, however, against the trustworthiness of confessions had a purely social origin. It referred to possible promises or threats by other members of the community. No doubt, the chances for such influences were different, too, at various times and in different social conditions. The self-sacrificing desire to exculpate others has played its role occasionally also. In short, there is no lack of social motives to make it conceivable from the start that an accused makes of his own accord a confession against himself which is not true. Especially in the realm of the minor offenses, promise and threat are still today constant sources of untrue self-accusation. Perhaps we can add still another motive which might induce a man in full possession of his understanding to declare himself guilty against his better knowledge. No statistics can tell the story, but we can suppose that persons suspected wrongly of a crime may, in the face of an unfortunate combination of damaging evidence, prefer to make a false confession in the hope of a recommendation to mercy. Every lawyer knows the famous Bourne case in Vermont, where the brothers confessed to having killed their brother-in-law and described the deed in full detail and how they destroyed the body, while long afterwards the murdered man returned alive to the village. The evidence against the suspected appeared so overwhelming that they saw only one hope to save their lives, by turning the verdict through their untrue confession from murder to manslaughter. To this group we might count not a few of the historic confessions in the Salem witchcraft tragedy. The nearest relatives urged the unfortunate accused women to such confessions, seeing no other way of escape for them. But just those dark chapters of New England history can show us an abundance of other forms of confession which lead us step for step from well-balanced calculation to complete alienation through all the borderland regions of mental confusion and disintegration. Even the advice of the nearest relatives of those accused as witches was often not at all based on confidence. The preposterous accusations were for them too sufficient proof of guilt, and not to confess appeared to them as obstinacy. Thus they urged the poor women prisoners, starting from the conviction that the unwillingness to confess showed that their minds were wholly given over to Satan. In many cases where they yielded, it was not from unworthy fear or for self-preservation, but because their judgment was overthrown and their minds in complete subjection and prostration. There can indeed hardly be a doubt that in some instances the confessing persons really believed themselves guilty. The reports agree further that the accused persons, when they made up their minds to confess, fabricated their stories with much ingenuity and tact, making them tally with the statements of the accusers, adding points and items that gave an air of truthfulness. Anne Foster at Salem Village confessed in 1692 that the devil appeared to her in the shape of a bird at several times. She further stated that it was Goody Carrier that made her a witch. She told her that if she would not be a witch, the devil would tear her to pieces and carry her away at which time she promised to serve the devil, that she was at the meeting of the witches at Salem Village, they got upon sticks and went said journey, and so forth. Yet Anne Foster was not insane. The horrors of the accusation had overpowered the distressed mind. We should say today that a disassociation of her little mind had set in. The emotional shock brought it about that the normal personality went to pieces and that a split-off second personality began to form itself with its own connected life story built up from the absurd superstitions which had been suggested to her through the hypnotizing examinations. The untrue confessions from hope or fear, through promises and threats, from cunning calculations and passive yielding, thus shade off into others which are given with real conviction under the pressure of emotional excitement or under the spell of overpowering influences. Even the mere fatigue often brought to the Salem witches the loosening of the mental firmness and the intrusion of the suggestion of guilt. In tedious examinations, the prisoners were urged to confess through many hours, 
till the accused were wearied out by being forced to stand so long or by want of sleep, and they gave assent to the accusation of having signed the devil's book. End of section 11